Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm making it. <laughs> we missed you last week, uh, yeah. and you know we've been thinking about you. With you've been down with COVID, and it sounds like you know in the time we've been talking, it sounds like you know you haven't recovered fully yet. So, ugh, I'm sorry. Sorry, it's such a bad, yeah, bad time. I've been, you know, out of quarantine and testing negative for several days, but I still have a lot of lingering symptoms. Yeah. And I don't sound that great this yeah, week. Yeah, no, it's it well you, you sound great always, Jasmine. That's at least my opinion. So uh <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you're able to join us. I hope you feel better soon. I'm glad you you're testing negative and coming through it. But yeah, I just feel bad for you. I feel bad for everybody else that's catching it in this wave. It seems like it's getting it's getting worse right now. Uh probably gonna get a little bit more worse before it gets better. So stay safe out there, wear a mask. We aren't doing our COVID updates anymore, but uh yeah, it's it's still out there for sure. So Yeah, and we're pretty certain that we got it from the pride parade which was an outdoor event so that's a bummer too yeah you're even if you're being responsible like i mean <laughs> yeah. it's tough um yeah definitely definitely tough out there we have a great show this week our guest is dr Brittany hernandez stevenson who is running for state house in the 15th district that's in muhlenberg in butler counties Dr. Hernandez Stevenson, or Dr. B, as she goes by. She's great. I really, I, I met her uh, through the Rural Urban Exchange a couple of weeks ago. I was really, you know, she's just speaking at an event, and I was like, you're great. We got to get you on the show. So we did. Um, I, I really enjoyed talking to her. Jasmine, did you did you enjoy talking to Dr. B as well? Yeah, I thought that her interview was great, and I'm just really encouraged by the women running for office in Western Kentucky. It was really it's really hard to get people to run we left a lot of seats open with no democrat running and i'm really encouraged by all these women in western kentucky yeah we did catch a little bit of the story about how hard it was to recruit candidates when uh, dr b was talking to us about being recruited and she was like i said no five times before (laughs) i said yes so uh definitely definitely feel for the recruiters out there Do, do wish we had done a better job but it's tough to run in areas like this and the people who do are courageous they're brave and they're they're doing important work so we're really glad to bring that interview to you um in the show we have two things we wanted to talk about i'm going to be talking about Chad Meredith, who is potentially a nominee for a judicial seat in Kentucky, who is also a former Bevan uh, attorney. That's a weird story. Definitely want to talk about it. And then Jasmine is going to talk to us a little bit more about the ACLU's case to block the abortion trigger law, which is going on in Kentucky right now, um, which, you know, we, we talked a little bit about it last week. I talked a little bit about how there was a stay in the case where allowing uh, abortions to continue in, in Kentucky. But Jasmine's going to talk to uh, talk to us a, a lot more about the legal case stuff that I don't know about uh, that Jasmine can tell us about. So without any further ado, let's talk about Chad Meredith. Okay, Jasmine. On June 29th, which you know was last Wednesday, actually in the midst of me recording the show, Andrew Wolfson and Joe Sanka of the Courier-Journal broke the story that President Joe Biden intended to nominate very conservative lawyer Chad Meredith to a lifetime appointment in the federal judiciary. That's a big and crazy story because you usually don't get conservative Republicans nominated by Democrats. And, uh, and actually, that's 
That's not necessarily true. We'll get into that uh, in a second. So the source for the article was actually Congressman John Yarmuth, who was very mad that the president intended to nominate Meredith. The reporting was later confirmed by Andy Bashir's office, so there is literally zero reason to doubt the veracity of the story. That was something that was kind of going around. I know that was a little frustrating to you to see people on on the internet that was that were doubting the reporting. That was wild to me because. I think like that's a thing that happens with local newspapers and stuff a lot that there's people nationally like some of these blue wave type people on Twitter that didn't believe it and refused to believe that like a local reporter would have the story. Yeah. And then there was this weird like also people on appellate Twitter, which is something that I kind of follow like appellate lawyers um, who also didn't believe it. And other appellate lawyers in Kentucky were like, this is a <laughs> Pulitzer-winning <laughs> journalist. And and a lot of people like didn't seem to believe this story for some reason. Yeah, no, I think no matter who it is, I mean, in this case, it's like Democrats, probably like centrist and more center-left Democrats that were like very disappointed. And anytime, anytime you learn something about somebody who you like that's disappointing, uh, I think you often doubt believing it. Um, but a lot of times things are true. I mean, there were times I remember, you know, Bernie Sanders learning something about Bernie Sanders that and you would have like socialists that didn't like it. It's just kind of like, it's kind of natural to, to gravitate away from it. But certainly it is the case that this time it was like, yes, the, the blue wave emoji people who were very disappointed uh, that this was happening and didn't want to believe it. Uh, I think a lot of the skeptic- skepticism also came from the because there wasn't currently a vacancy in, in the court in the Eastern District of Kentucky. But on July 1st, Judge Karen Caldwell took senior status, opening the door um, to this nomination. So there there is currently a vacancy that Chad Meredith could fill. Yeah. So the point is Joe Sanka knows what he's talking about. Almost always. (laughs) Almost always. Unless he's making fun of me. Um, A little bit more about Chad Meredith, though. He is a Federalist Society member. He's a former attorney for Matt Bevin. And he was attorney for Matt Bevin when Bevin was governor. And he had a big hand in the pardons at the end of his term. We talked about that extensively when it was going on. But it was kind of like a scattershot pardon situation without a lot of research into why people were getting pardoned and just kind of like kind of who Matt Bevin felt like pardoning that day, got one, um, which, you know, uh, the pardon power is really important, um, but whenever it's used irresponsibly, um, it just kind of, like, lessens and, and really endangers the, the power that is really important. So that was kind of mm-hmm. what was going on with, with that situation. Uh, yeah, and Chad Meredith was was big in, in that, that occurrence. And also Chad Meredith was a former solicitor general for Daniel Cameron, he clerked for Amol Thapar, who is a very conservative uh, lawyer. At, I think at the time, Amol Thapar was on the circuit court, and he's now in the appellate court. Um, that's where he is now, right? Is that right? Yeah, he's on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Right, yeah. And and currently, Mr. Meredith has a big law job at one of those big, big law firms. He's extremely conservative. He defended the anti-abortion law and the right-to-work laws passed by the Kentucky legislature in court. I don't remember which year's abortion law he was supporting, probably like 2017 or 2018. But the right-to-work law was from 2017. Um, that one, you know, was won by the court. Um, the anti-abortion one, of course, was lost because Roe v. Wade was in effect at the time. And also, he's the son of State Senator Stephen Meredith, um, who himself is also a very conservative Republican. 
Okay, according to the reporting, Meredith would have been nominated in a deal between President Biden and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. It's still unclear exactly what the deal was, but there is some speculation and some reporting by Slate that uh, it would allow the confirmation of President Biden's choices for the prosecutor spots in Kentucky. It's unusual for U.S. attorney slots to remain open for this long. So during the Trump administration, Russell Coleman and Robert Duncan, who were President Trump's appointees to the Eastern and Western District of Kentucky, they were confirmed in 2017, the first year that President Trump took office. Um, and, And unlike judicial appointments, U.S. attorneys can be filibustered. In judicial appointments, there is no filibuster. Um, that was taken away, I don't know, like a decade ago or something like that. But for U.S. attorneys, you know, if a senator puts a hold on that or, you know, they can basically filibuster it if they don't have 60 votes to support the U.S. attorney jobs. So Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, can and certainly seems like he has scuttled the appointments that President Biden wants to make to these U.S. attorney jobs in Kentucky. So judicial appointments, though, are lifetime appointments. U.S. attorneys serve only for the length of a presidential administration. So it's possible that whoever President Biden nominates for these slots would only get to serve like the two years remaining in his term if President Biden uh, doesn't, you know, win re-election or decides not to run or, or loses. Um, that is, uh, that is certainly something that might be the case. So it doesn't seem like a super great trade to get to, uh, us attorneys for perhaps only two years while, uh, you know, the conservatives get a lifetime appointment for an incredibly conservative judge. Um, if that is in fact the deal, which there isn't full confirmation from that, from the courier journal, just, uh, some reporting from slate about that. This is, seems like a really crazy story. And it is. It is a crazy story. It's really disappointing as a Democrat to see, you know, President Biden to do something like this. Um, I don't like it at all. But I do think some additional context may help it make maybe a little bit more sense. So in the past, a state's uh, senior senator, senior U.S. senator, would be the main person selecting nominees for U.S. attorneys and judges. Basically, all the judicial appointments for a state would be run through that state's senator, uh, regardless of party. And this is called the blue slip process. And it existed for about a century. And at some states gave, you know, home state senators a complete veto over a president's nominations for judicial judicial appointments in the state. So if you as the senior senior senator for a state did not like the president's appointment, you could put a hold on the Judiciary Committee and stop that nominee from progressing at all. So it basically was forced to be a negotiation between the state senators and the president before before anybody was ever nominated for a judicial spot. That process was developed, though, by segregationist senators in southern states who forced presidents of both parties who supported civil rights to nominate segregationist prosecutors and judges in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas, etc. That is, that is why this situation, why this process was developed. The blue slip pl- the blue slip process has been changed significantly, and at this point, blue slips don't mean much of anything. Uh, Mitch McConnell had a major major hand in dismantling this process during the Bush and Trump years, and uh, 2019 was actually the first time ever that a federal judicial nominee was confirmed despite, despite negative blue slips from both home senators, and that actually happened in a, a judicial appointment in Washington, where both Democratic senators gave a thumbs down to to a judicial appointment for that state, um, and President Trump and the Republican Senate pushed it through anyway. So that is um, that that is like the blue slip process. So you know that that situation had existed for a long time. For a long time, 
nominees to both U.S. Attorney and Judicial slots were basically a forced negotiation between the president and that state senators. But as the you know, a lot of things has, have changed. Um, the way that segregationism works in America has certainly shifted very significantly. It used to be a lot more uh, like de jure. It used to be like people wanting like segregationist laws. Uh, and, you know, it's it's perhaps a little bit different now. Um, but, you know, and as the Senate has gotten a lot more partisan, this whole situation has really changed a lot. So, Without this process in place, Mitch McConnell and other senators are looking for new ways to wield power in their home states where they lack a majority when they lack a majority in the Senate. So Mitch McConnell, you know, if he were in the majority, could basically just like stop things. You know, things only run through the Senate at that point. But because the Democrats run the Senate. Mitch McConnell has to find some way to either get uh, to get the president to nominate somebody that he supports. And this is a power move. And, and it's, you know, not something we're not used to seeing from Senator McConnell. Uh, but I think the reason it's happening is because because he's looking for ways to wield power over who gets nominated in Kentucky um, to, to kind of replace the blue slip process, which he both helped destroy and uh, th- now does not does not benefit from. Jasmine, does that does that all make sense? That blue slip process uh, is there is there any any part of that that you think is still confusing? No, that all makes sense to me. It sounds like they're just trying to kind of use it in a different way with abortion instead of segregation now. Yeah, no, that's definitely definitely the case um, where you know that Republicans are trying to find ways to get more anti-abortion uh, you know judicial nominees forward that is certainly certainly true so democrats in kentucky were and are apoplectic about this potential nomination congressman yarmouth who is responsible for the leak that allowed this nomination to become public said that he vehemently opposed the nomination governor andy Bashir, who later confirmed the reporting said that the nomination would be indefensible because of the pardon issues mostly um, andy Bashir didn't just confirm it i think today he released an email yeah yeah there was a there was a there was a foia or i don't know if it was an open records request or a freedom of information request because i don't know if it was like a federal or state thing um but yes initially the federal government was like you can't release that it's privileged for whatever reason and Andy Bashir was like i'm doing it and just did um to show that it was in fact uh, a real story so yeah, this nomination has yet to be made. Uh, this is a story. It is uh, reporting about a potential thing that might happen. It was apparently supposed to happen on the day of the Dobbs ruling, but because the Dobbs ruling came down on that day, uh, it didn't happen. Since the plan became public, became clear, there has been a significant outcry from just about every quarter of the Democratic Party in Kentucky and really across the whole country um, for the people who pay attention to these kinds of issues. Uh, nobody who helped craft the plan, nobody in the Biden administration, nobody in McConnell's office, nor you know Chad Meredith himself have made any comments whatsoever about it. So it seems like the, the situation is on hold. Um, but we, of course, don't know how it's going to end. President Biden still has an appointment to make in this seat. And it's something that we certainly should watch very closely. Um, and let's really hope that whoever takes Judge Caldwell's seat is not Chad Meredith. So that's the Chad Meredith story. Uh, yeah, Jasmine, I don't know. Uh, as you were reading about this, what were your thoughts? Uh, how do you feel about it? I mean, mainly 
that it's a terrible deal because the U.S. attorney would serve for probably two years and then you get a lifetime anti-abortion judge on the bench. And so it doesn't seem smart to me. I know, you know, Biden's gotten a lot of criticism, sometimes unwarranted, but I I think the criticism here is warranted. Um, I guess we don't really know, you know, the appointment didn't happen because of Dobbs, um, but we don't know if it was just going to be delayed or if it was, if they decided to, you know, pull the appointment because of it, you know, if, if they decided to do the right thing, then that's one thing. Um, but if it was just, Hey, we're going to wait a little while until this blows over and then we'll do it. I feel worse about it. I both on one, I, I on one hand, like understand the frustration that the Biden administration has around not being able to get your appointees through, despite having a democratic Senate, um, because of shenanigans being pulled by Mitch McConnell. I get that. That's really frustrating. And trying to find yeah. any way out of that um, makes sense. But you can't just go taking bad deals all the time. It, it does probably need to be said that President Biden has nominated a whole bunch of you know, you know, pro-choice, pro-abortion rights judges in his term in office, uh, you know, matching President Trump's number of judicial appointments uh, during his term. Um, but yeah, this one is just, it's not okay. It's not okay for a Democratic president to appoint a, an anti-abortion rights judge in 2022. Uh, just with, with the fault lines being drawn as they are, uh, with the increasing importance of this issue in both the federal and the state judiciary, um, we just can't have it. Um, so I, I certainly hope i certainly hope that it is uh gone forever i will not think it is done until uh you know until we get somebody nominated for the spot so we're going to continue paying attention to it until until then um all right well i hope we never have to talk about chad meredith again um but we aren't talking about him anymore on this show jasmine tell us about the aclu's suit to block the abortion trigger law All right, so after the Dobbs decision, Kentucky became one of the first states to outlaw abortion due to a trigger law um, that passed in 2019. But the following Monday, um, with the help of the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, and the EMW Clinic in Louisville, filed a lawsuit in Jefferson Circuit Court to block the trigger law and the heartbeat bill from going into effect. So the trigger law and the heartbeat bill both passed the legislature in 2019. And the trigger law um, is what would outlaw abortion and it makes it a class D felony to perform an abortion unless it's to prevent the death or substantial risk of death or to prevent serious permanent impairment of a life sustaining organ of a pregnant woman. Um, so this lawsuit is based on the Kentucky constitution. That's why the suit is in state court. Um, because there's no longer any federal protection for the right to abortion. But the ACLU is arguing that Kentucky's state constitution protects the right to privacy and the right to bodily autonomy. Their argument is based on a few different sections of the Kentucky constitution. So sections one and two, um, section one says all men are by nature free and equal and have certain inherent and inalienable rights among which may be reckoned. First, the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties. Um, There's a second one. And then third, the right of seeking and pursuing their safety and happiness. So um, that's section one. And then their argument based on section two, uh, section two of the Kentucky Constitution says that um, 
absolute and arbitrary power over the lives, liberty, and property of free men exists nowhere in a republic, not even in the largest majority. So um, those are two sections of the Kentucky Constitution that the ACLU is saying um, that the right to privacy and the right to bodily autonomy is implicit in those sections of the Constitution. The ACLU is also arguing based on Section 2 um, about arbitrary power um, that the trigger law is unconstitutionally vague. It becomes effective, the bill says, upon the occurrence of a decision overturning Roe versus Wade. And so the ACLU is saying, does this mean when the decision came out or does this mean once a certified copy is transmitted, which happens 25 days after a decision? Um, so that hasn't happened yet. And so the plaintiffs, the clinics, have been forced to stop providing abortions, um, even though it's unclear whether the law is even in effect yet because of that vagueness in the language of the bill. So there's also um, an unconstitutionally vague argument there. They also argue that um, the law violates sections 27, 28, and 29 of the Kentucky Constitution, which are the separations of power provisions. Um, they say it's an unlawful delegation of legislative power because the trigger law basically leaves it up to the Supreme Court to decide the scope of Kentucky criminal law. Does that make sense, Robert? Yeah, so, like, the Constitution says that, like, the legislature, the judicial, and the executive branch all have different sorts of powers, and the legislature can't say, well, we're going to not make a law about this and let the judicial branch make the law. So they're saying that that's unlawful for them to delegate that authority over to the judicial branch because it's in the Constitution that the legislature should have that power. Right, so yeah, be because the law like takes effect upon a Supreme court decision. Um, and the law defines like what is a felony in Kentucky, um, that that's an unlawful delegation of power. Right. And so, um, that also implicates section 60 of the Kentucky constitution, um, which says that no law shall be an, acted to take effect upon the approval of any other authority than the general assembly unless expressly provided in the constitution. And so this law took effect because of a U.S. Supreme court decision. Um, and the ACLU is arguing that that's a violation of section 60 because you have to have approval from the general assembly. That to me seems like a really strong argument. Um, very I think, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, whether whether the Supreme Court of Kentucky is willing to, you know, say that there's an implicit right to privacy and bodily autonomy based on sections one and two, I have no idea. But I do think that this section 60 argument um, seems strong to me because it the language seems clear. Yeah. And you're a lawyer, so you would be able to answer this for me, hopefully. But I feel like whenever you try to make a case on the really early sections of the Constitution, like about the, you know, freedom of men or whatever, and like <laughs> the, the life, liberty and pursuit of happiness stuff like that, that is 
that is more sweeping language and uh it's it's really hard to kind of like make the case that this is impinging on people's freedom because it's kind of like up for interpretation yeah and the law is what judges say it is Mm -hmm. you know in the 1970s the judges read a federal right in the federal constitution a right to privacy and to bodily autonomy. Yeah. And now, as of a couple weeks ago, they are no longer reading that into yeah. the Constitution. And yeah. so I think there's a lot more up for interpretation with sections one and two. Yeah, and I think like for each of the the, the layers of this argument that, that you're you're telling us about here, like one and two, just like big and sweeping. If they want to go big and sweeping, you know, I would be thrilled at that. I just find it highly unlikely. Uh, and then the, the second section about separation of powers, that makes sense to me, but it is still a little bit like nebulous and then you drill down into this like the section 60 which is an extremely specific thing that seems that the trigger law like very explicitly violates so if you wanted to write an opinion and you're a supreme court justice that has to stand for election in you know uh rural kentucky uh and you're worried about you know ruling against abortion you can be like listen they wrote the law in a really stupid way. I'm sorry. It was out of my hands. I couldn't do it. Uh, that that seems to me significantly more likely mm-hmm. uh, than than you know anything in the the upper layers of the Constitution. Yeah. So you know what could happen is that they rule that it's you know an unconstitutional delegation or that it violates Section 60, and they don't get to the sections one and two argument that 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 rights protected by the Kentucky constitution, which means that um, they would strike down this trigger law. But now that Dobbs has been decided, they don't have to write a law that says this law takes effect upon the occurrence of a decision from Uh, the U S Supreme court. Well, we'll get Yeah. Now they can just pass it. Yeah. And, and and that's likely going to happen no matter what they'll, they'll, uh, and this, this fight will be protracted and, and it will be in the courts and it will be in the legislature for, forever uh until you know probably forever i mean i think it will just continue to go as long as we have a a legislature um where they'll in kentucky the republicans are going to try to write a new law if this one gets overturned that it bans abortion in, in a different way that one will go to court you know and then if that gets overturned we'll go back to the legislature and we also have this constitutional amendment which you're going to get to at the end yeah and you know i think this is also why it's important to you know, I, I know so many people are are just really turned off by politics right now and the lack of action by the federal government on the issue of abortion and things like that. But like this is why like judicial elections are so important because we have to elect judges who, you know, might um might rule that that rights protected by the Kentucky constitution instead of these like Liberty caucus judges that that, that are running for uh, office. And so there, there are a lot of really important elections. There, there is so much that the federal government can do about abortion. And I don't want to make it seem like I'm not saying that I do know that the, you know, the federal Congress and the president can do a ton more on abortion that they're not doing right now. But this is now, Abortion is going to be fought at the state level, likely for a long time. And, you know, we have a mayor's candidate in Louisville that has pledged to decriminalize abortion. Um, You know, we have a lot of state legislator seats that are up for grabs. And this fight is going to be in the state legislature probably for as long as there is a legislature. All of the judges are going to rule one way or another. We are so lucky to have, you know, a, a, you know, a, 
governor that supports abortion rights, if we had an attorney general that supported abortion rights, we would be in much, much better shape right now Mm -hmm. than than we are. Um, And and so like all of these elections are so important. And yeah, I I agree with you, Jasmine. I really just hope people don't let their frustration uh, with the Congress and with the federal government, you know, prevent them from, uh, you know, going out to vote for for some of these elections that are so important on the state and local level. Yeah. So, you know, that's all a little bit uh, beyond the scope of the lawsuit. But I I think it's an (laughs) important thing to know. You know, this is going to this is going to come down to who's on the Kentucky Supreme Court. Um, But going back to the lawsuit. So the first step in the lawsuit was a request for a temporary restraining order. So a temporary restraining order is for emergency situations to enjoin another party's conduct. And so um, a a temporary restraining order is a more urgent than a motion for a preliminary injunction, which was heard today. Um, so judge Mitch Perry and the Jefferson circuit court granted the temporary restraining order, um, which means that the EMW clinic Planned Parenthood, they can resume abortions in Kentucky. Daniel Cameron um, sought review from the court of appeals and the Supreme court um, and both declined to reverse the Jefferson Circuit Court's order. So that means that Daniel Cameron cannot enforce the trigger law as of right now. Um, A lot of people ask, like, they saw, like, the one-page order from the Jefferson Circuit Court, and I think the Supreme Court's order was a two-page order that didn't contain really any reasoning, and that's because this was just, like, an emergency motion for the temporary restraining order. There will probably be a much longer written order um, on the motion for a preliminary injunction, which was heard today in Jefferson Circuit Court. So um, if Judge Perry grants the preliminary injunction, Daniel Cameron cannot enforce the trigger law until the case is decided on the merits. And and so that requires a little bit more. So there was testimony from both sides today. um, And the judge will be looking at there's like four factors for preliminary injunctions, likelihood of success on the merits, harm to the moving party, harm to others. Um, and, you know, is it in is an injunction in the public interest? And so um, usually the the hard one to prove is the likelihood of success on the merits. And that's why um, they aren't often granted. And so I think we will get a more lengthy order from the circuit court on the motion for preliminary injunction. And I don't know how long um, the court will take to rule on that, but um, that's what's next. So what's next is the Supreme court ruling on the temporary restraining order. No, this, the, the Supreme court already ruled on the temporary restraining order and, um, ruled in favor of the ACLU. And so the temporary restraining order is in place. That means that so this is the, um, the law can't be enforced. So this is the one that's like beyond the temporary restraining order. Yeah. It's like the extra, the regular restraining order. Right. Uh, which the, lasts through the pendency of the case. Right. And so Judge Perry, it's now be- gone all the way back to the beginning with Judge Perry hearing all yeah. this testimony. And I know that that was going on today. So he will rule and then that will be appealed to the Court of Appeals and that will be appealed up to the Supreme Court. So we have to go through this again. But like yes. for like with with testimony and like less than. A, OK. All right. And, and, then, and then we the have the trial was heard today. So, yeah. you know, there's no testimony or anything like that at the Court of Appeals yeah. mm-hmm. or Supreme Court there. They're just reviewing the record and the decision of the circuit court judge. And then there will be 
um, a ruling on the merits sometime much later, probably. And Jasmine, do you, okay, so we have this constitutional amendment, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, do you feel like the case will overlap election day? Like if it goes that long and the constitution changes, do we have like a mootness issue that we might face? I like a mootness issue because they'll pass a new bill. Is that what you're saying? I guess it wouldn't be because like, yeah, the law is still like the constitution, Kentucky constitution might change, but that's still like your section 60 stuff still does matter. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that it still matters. You know what? I do think it's important that the case is decided pretty quickly, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which I think because of the issues here, I hope that it will be. Um, sometimes things linger for a long time, but I, I think that the judges probably understand the urgency here. Sure. And I would like for it to be heard by the Supreme court before election day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we'll get to, to a merits ruling by then. I know we'll definitely like the preliminary injunction motion. will will definitely make its way through, but sure. I'm not sure. But the last thing I wanted to note is that on the ballot, we have a constitutional amendment this year um, that would ensure that the Kentucky Constitution does not protect the right to an abortion. Um, The amendment would say to protect human life, nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to an abortion or require the funding of an abortion. So I think it's important that we start telling people now um, that that's going to be on the ballot and tell people to vote no on yeah. that amendment. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a tough one to win, but I certainly hope that that we give it a hard, a, a really a good campaign. You know, I, I we deserve it. This issue is really important to a lot of people, to everybody. Um, and yeah, we we need we need to, to, to do a good job on that campaign. It is kind of interesting. It's a little bit more narrow than I remember it being. It just says the Constitution should not be construed to secure or protect our right to an abortion um and i guess yeah i, I guess that does that does matter for some of the rulings like that the section one uh, the the section one and two argument that they're trying to make that would kind of right that would make it explicit that it's not protected by sections one yeah. or two or any other section yeah that would make sense all right well that is the court case which we will be following very closely as it moves along here um anything else jasmine Nope, I think that's it. Okay, well, all right, great. Let's get to our interview with Dr. Brittany Hernandez-Stevenson. Dr. Brittany Hernandez-Stevenson is the Democratic candidate for House District 15 in Muhlenberg and Butler counties. This is her first run for public office, and Dr. Hernandez-Stevenson is the Muhlenberg campus manager for Madisonville Community College, and she received her EDD from Western Kentucky University in 2021. In 2020, Dr. Hernandez-Stevenson helped to relaunch the Muhlenberg County chapter of the NAACP and is the current president. So, Brittany Hernandez-Stevenson, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. 
Yeah, we're really excited to have you on, too. Uh, just like we've been really excited to, in, in all of our sweep through Western Kentucky, a lot of really awesome people that are running for office out there, which is a, a, a good change, I think, for, for how, it, how it's been kind of out there. Um, so, yeah, looking at your campaign biography and a few of the other materials that we saw about you, it looks like your life is already marked by a significant amount of you know community involvement. Um, in, in public service in a lot of different kind of ways. Now, you know, you're looking to run for, for public office and super community, you know, as a politician. So, so tell us why you decided to, to make that decision, why this year you decided to run for the state house. It's actually kind of interesting. When I was asked to run back in October or so, I was told that this would potentially be one of the most important elections of our time. And someone had kind of mentioned to me that I've been so involved in different areas. I'm also in Rotary, United Way, uh, Chamber of Commerce. And, and they told me that since I'm so involved in the community and I'm making impacts on a smaller scale, that this would be an opportunity for me to make an even bigger impact on the people in Kentucky. So that was one of the reasons, I guess you could say, that I got the idea to run. I actually said no. When I was first asked, I was like, no, I'm good. I kind of <laughs> declined it several times because I had just finished my doctorate degree and it took me about four years to do that. So I'm a single mom. My daughter's 12 now. And for me, I felt like I had taken a lot of time away from her. So I didn't want to take any more time. So she was really the reason I said I wasn't going to run. But then flip it around, she ended up being ended up being the reason that I did decide to run. We were in the car one day and I was talking about it and she was like, mom, I think you should run. I think that you can make a difference. I think that you can have an impact on people and this is something that you should do. So I'm actually glad that I decided to run because this is a very important campaign and I'm hoping that I can bring some much needed attention to our Western Kentucky, you know, District 15, and I'm hoping that I can be a voice for the people here. Yeah, let's talk about your district a little bit. So we've been talking to several candidates from Western Kentucky and, you know, letting our listeners get to know the people and the politics of that region of the state. So what did you already know about the 15th district that you wish the rest of Kentucky knew? And what have you learned about the 15th district since you started running for office there? Well, for me, both counties in my district have a great sense of community and support. You know, we're both smaller counties, so we rely on one another, have to support one of one another. So I think that's something that I realized early on, you know, with me growing up here in Muhlenberg County, I knew that. I know that Muhlenberg County is the home of the Everly Brothers, has a rich mm -hmm. music history, uh, lots of great things happening in the county. Most people wouldn't think that, but it is. And to be honest, I didn't know as much about Butler County. It was one of those places we heard about. I drove through because I went to school in Bowling Green at Western, but I didn't have an opportunity to really visit Butler County. But something that I have learned is that it's the home of the Green River Catfish Festival, which has been very interesting to watch, and also the award-winning Butler County Arts Guild. So I know that with us being a smaller district, we have our challenges uh, we actually have some of the highest unemployment rates in the state, which, you know, can be something negative, but we want to try and turn that into a positive. We've tried to bring in different businesses to both communities, which has brought in jobs for different people for uh, an income, helped the economy to grow. But I know that there's still work that needs to be done. 
in all areas. There's always room for improvement, always room for more businesses to come here. And another thing with that is the technological advances, you know, pretty much across the country. We've had to up our game with technology just because our students needed it for COVID, needed to do their schoolwork and, and then people working from home. But I didn't realize the lack of internet capabilities we had in a lot of these areas. So something else that I've really paid more attention to is that need and the fact that we need more broadband or we need broadband in this area. So I think the governor's initiative is going to be something positive for our community. And once it works its way to our area, I think that it'll be very beneficial for us. So I'm hoping that we can continue to celebrate these communities and kind of bring their accolades to the forefront. Yeah, I think internet access is definitely something that people, you know, where we are in Louisville may not think about, but it's definitely a problem in certain parts of the state. So it's definitely important um, to highlight that. You mentioned that you you know, hadn't been to Butler County as much. And prior to redistricting, the 15th district was almost entirely within Muhlenberg County, where you are from and where you currently live. And and so now the district includes Butler County. So tell us a little bit about what it's been like running for office in a place where you may not know the community as well. It's been exciting and it's been scary, if I'm going to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's exciting because I have an opportunity and I've had the opportunity to meet some amazing people. And these are people I probably wouldn't have had a chance to connect with before. But it's also scary because I don't know what some of their perceptions may be, especially with me being an outsider coming into an area where I'm a Democrat and the majority of the county is Republican. But I'm a people person and I can relate to pretty much anyone. And so I think that the redistricting will only be the beginning of many great collaborations and opportunities for our communities. You know, I've, I've mentioned a couple of times when I'm out, we've been neighbors for far too long. So some may see the redistricting as a negative, but I see it as a positive for us to do some more work together, make some more connections. So I'm really excited about that and really excited about getting involved in the community and hope, hopefully listening to the people and what they need. That's a really positive way to look at redistricting. <laughs> There's so much negative in the world right now. I'm trying to stay as positive as possible. Yeah, I definitely get that. So your race is a little bit different than some of the other Western Kentucky candidates we've talked to. They are running against incumbents and you're running for an open seat as Representative Melinda Gibbons Prunty decided not to run for re-election this year. Your opponent appears to be similar to the Liberty Caucus. You know, she seems skeptical about COVID vaccines and opposes any kinds of regulations on guns, including assault rifles. You know, do you feel your like your opponent's stances leave you an opening to win the votes of moderate Republicans in your district? Um, you know, what have you been doing to try to win those folks' votes? Honestly, I do believe that the combination of what you've discussed, my current relationships in the community, because I've been involved. I started working back in Muhlenberg County in 2018. And I've probably been really heavily involved since early 2019, part of 2018. So I think that my relationships in the community, my willingness to listen and try to compromise with people is really going to help me to win a lot of those votes. 
This seat has always been in Muhlenberg County. So that's another aspect, even though I am from Muhlenberg County, I, I do realize that I'm representing both counties. So I want to give just as much priority to both. Uh, I actually did have a chance to visit Butler County. I know I talked about the Green River Catfish Festival, but I went there Sunday and I really, really enjoyed myself. I talked with a lot of people. They were very welcoming and friendly. I had some conversations, listened to some of the issues that people have. But for me, um, at the end of the day, we might not all agree on everything, but I think that as long as you're willing to hear people out, as long as they know that you actually care about what they're trying to say, you want to try and meet their needs, try to find some common ground, then you can make a lot of great things happen. So I've actually had a, a couple of situations where that's happened because it's an open seat, but both counties have a lot of Republicans and a lot of people think, oh, well, you don't have a chance. That's not the case. I have a lot of support from all parties and um, it's just me being able to talk to people. I actually had a gentleman who said that he had never voted for a Democrat in a seat state level or higher, but he told me that he was voting for me just because he liked what I had to say. And because of the people that run in my circle, he really had a lot of respect for them. So I think if you surround yourself with the right people, you know, and at the right time that you can gain a lot more support like that. So even though I'm a Democrat, I know that I can gain Republican support because for me, I do represent the party, but at the end of the day, it's about the people and what the people want and what the people need. So as long as we stop letting those letters behind our names scare, scare us off or intimidate us, I think that anything's possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to take a lot of organizing like that across the whole state before mm -hmm. uh, if we're ever going to make any progress. So uh, good to hear that you're, you're doing the work out there in Muhlenberg and Butler counties. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, people, there being a lot of Republicans in both of these counties, and that's certainly true, especially lately, but it wasn't that long ago, 2014, that uh, the, the 15th district elected a Democrat, you know, the late Brent Brent Yance, who uh, was well-respected by just about everybody I've talked to that knew him. Um, he served the people in Muhlenberg in the House from 97, I guess he was first elected in 96, all the way up until he lost re-election in 2016 in the big, the first big Trump wave that came through uh, Kentucky. Um, no black person has in recent memory run for this seat. And, you know, just looking at the demographics of these two counties, 5% of Muhlenberg County citizens are black and 1% and of Butler County citizens are, are black. So, you know, you're, you're running for office as a black woman in, in this uh, Western Kentucky district. Tell us what that's been like. How has it been, you know, communicating as, as a black Democrat in a district that's very white and in many ways, all very Republican? Well, as you mentioned earlier, I grew up here. Muhlenberg County is my home. Uh, being in a minority in an area like this is not something that's new to me. For me, getting involved in the community and being around people who don't look like me is something that's kind of in my DNA. My mom retired from TVA and she was always involved in things and she still is. So attending and participating in events beside her has given me the ability to be able to connect with people directly. Uh, all people just want to be seen and heard, and I respect and work alongside people from different walks of life on a regular basis. So you're right. I am the first Black to run for this seat. 
Uh, I was also the first black in several positions here in the county. So like me being the administrator at my campus and then also being the Rotary president last year, uh, it's not new to me being the first black person in position or the first one to have a seat at the table. So I think that using those things are going to be beneficial to me. I don't really have an interest in power or position. However, I do understand that sometimes you need to be in a position to be able to bring change to the community. So it's not that I want the power for personal gain, but I know that if I want to get things done, putting myself in these positions is what's going to make it happen. So my main interest is in improving the daily life of the people in this district because they deserve it. They deserve to be heard. They deserve to be represented. And for far too long, I feel like these people have been disappointed. So I want to be one of the people that actually has an opportunity to change that. Yeah, and that's really awesome to hear you talk about the district and, and how your candidacy and how you really want to, to represent the people of your district. But but I am interested in, in your personal perspective. Um, you know, if you win this election, you know, there, there are currently three black women that are serving in the House of Representatives. They're all in Louisville. Um, what would it mean to you to be elected as a black woman in, in a more rural district in, in Kentucky? How would it make you feel and what would you hope that that would represent to the rest of the state? It is going to be epic. That's 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 the thing. You know, my race in itself is already historic just because I am the first to run for this seat. And when I spoke, what was it, a month ago, two months ago, time's flying by, uh, during the Rural Urban Exchange, I talked about people who look like me and that representation matters. So this is an opportunity, no matter the outcome, for people who look like me, or those who have faced some of the obstacles that I face to know that they too have a chance. So I may be the first, but I won't be the last. Uh, People who are usually counted out will see that they too can make the impossible possible. I never ever would have expected that doors like this would open for me or that I would ever run for office. Being a single mom, you know, and having to fight different battles as a minority, I feel like I fought like hell pretty much to get here. So I just want to give other women and people of color a sense of hope that they too, if they're in the right position, in the right mind frame, they can be right here in my shoes next. So I'm just hoping to be a role model for many and let people know that they have a chance. And I'm hoping that we will see more representation in government and leadership. Absolutely. You know, I, I, that, that's really great to hear. I'm really glad that, you know, you, you feel that way because, I, I mean, I think a lot of people look at this race in, in, in the same terms. So that's that's great. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about how Western Kentucky has changed over the past, you know, couple decades. And uh, Democrats really used to dominate Western Kentucky, and that is not the case any longer. Um, Nowadays, you know, yeah, nearly every elected official is a Republican up and down from, you know, county commission, county judge executives, all the way up to state representatives and and state senators up until, you know, governor, senator, all that kind of stuff. Um, You know. Your campaign is uh, seeking to use a Democratic message. You know, you're running as a Democrat, and I'm sure, you know, even though you say, you know, the name, the letter at the end of my name doesn't matter as much as it uh, matters more than it should, it still does matter to people. Uh, And I am interested, you know, in running in a district like this, what are the parts of the Democratic message that do resonate with the folks out in Western Kentucky? Uh, And what are the parts that that don't uh, uh, result in them running screaming away because, you know, you're some kind of like... I don't know, whatever. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, One of the main things is that 
I feel the Democratic Party focuses on the people. So I know I've said that a lot, but one of the things that I've been saying, and I got this from my neighbor because it sums it all up. It's about we, not me. So the goal is to focus on what the people want and what the people need versus focusing on just the interest of the elected officials. So I think that equality, education, healthcare, economic growth and development are all very important factors that play into what Democrats stand for and what people want, you know, because those can all be looked at from different ways. They're very, very broad, but essentially they all meet the needs of the people. So we want to focus on everyone, no matter what their race, age, sexual orientation, religion, any of those things are. The goal is to help as many people in our communities as we can. And my motto for my campaign is be the change, the voice and the vision. So that's what I want to do. And I think that's that overall, that's what we want to do is we want to find whatever it is that the people need and try to make sure that we meet that. So that's my ultimate goal. Yeah, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about specific issues, too. So your day job is in higher education as part of Kentucky's community college system. And education is obviously a major topic in Frankfurt. Um, but higher education sometimes get over gets overlooked, even when um, higher education is a topic. Sometimes community college doesn't even get mentioned. So how would you like the government in Frankfurt to improve its support of community colleges? I'd love for more funding to be provided and there to be more support for various programs at the community college level. I think that our state legislators need to really understand that the 16 colleges within the KCTCS system play a significant role in the education and workforce development of the state. You hear about it, but I don't think that people really realize what we do at this level. I'd love to see more collaborations between the colleges and the universities. And I think that, you know, different things in legislation could help make that happen. I'm actually really thrilled that I have a chance to be a voice for KCTCS. It was actually another thing that kind of pushed me to run. Uh, I think it's easy for someone from the outside in any situation to kind of give their thoughts on what they see. But this is something that I live and not many of our legislators have. So I have watched for the 10 years that I've been here, I've watched our administration fight for more space at the table. And I feel like the time is now. And to know that I finally have a chance to be the one fighting for um, an organization that I absolutely love and believe in, I think it's amazing. Besides higher education, you know, what are some other issues that you hope to champion if you make it to Frankfurt? You know, do you have a, a first bill in mind that you'd file? Well, I don't necessarily have a first bill. I, one is I want to name after a friend. I say I don't have a first bill in mind, but there are some things that I've been thinking about. Uh, and it's related to second chance, second chance programs, kind of criminal reform, criminal justice reform. Uh, but I think that people who have been in trouble, especially when it's related to drugs, or if they have felonies, they don't always get those second, third, fourth, fifth opportunities to get things right, even though they may be some of the ones that are really ready to get out into the workforce, ready to make a difference in the community, they don't have that opportunity. So I would love to see more of that from the economic and workforce development side. Uh, more childcare resources for parents who are wanting to return to school or the workforce, because I know how difficult that is. 
being a single parent, trying to go to school, trying to work, it's hard to try and find someone to take care of your child. I was fortunate to have such a great support system, but not everyone has that. You know, not everyone is as fortunate as me. So if we could provide more of that, I think we would see more people going back to work, more people trying to go back to school so that they can get the better paying jobs. Another big one for me is what I call AAA healthcare, which is affordable, accessible, and alternative healthcare for individuals. So, you know, one thing that someone mentioned to me was the dentists in our area don't accept adult Medicaid. So trying to get some changes with that, more care for our seniors and our veterans, uh, legalizing medicinal cannabis. I think that's huge for alternative health care and will be huge and play a significant role here in Kentucky. Education, of course, not just higher education, but pre-K and then K through 12 on all levels from safety to wages, uh, diverse curriculum, sustainable pensions for the teachers. I think all of those things are something we need to really look into. And there's there's so much more. I think that we could probably go on and on. I'll be here all night talking about the different things that we need to address. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but starting off with uh, criminal justice reforms in early childhood is is a way to, to win over this show for sure. Uh, those are <laughs> those two of our biggest issues that we yeah. care about the most. So that's awesome. Um, all right. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we didn't want to let you go without asking, uh, what are the ways that, that folks can learn more about your campaign and get involved if they want to do that? Uh, for me, uh, you can follow my Facebook page at Dr. Brittany for State Representative. I'm also on TikTok at Dr. B for KY, which is DRB, the number four in KY, and also Instagram at Dr. B for State Rep, which is also DRB, the number four, and then State Rep. Uh, I also have a website, www.drbforstaterep.com, just like my Instagram. And on there, it has my contact information, my bio, ways that people can volunteer, donate if they want to. And there's also links to my social media from there, just in case someone can't find me. All right. Well, thank you very much, Brittany Hernandez, Brittany Hernandez Stevenson, for for joining for us today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You have my mom to thank for that. <laughs> thank you. Jasmine, how can people find out about us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that contains our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.